one big issue or one big challenge I find a lot of business owners and businesses have is that they just want to keep testing, right? They test because they think it's something they have to keep doing. And you should in a sense. But for me, the ultimate point of testing is to find the winners, to find the gold. And when you have the gold, it's okay to stop testing and just triple down on everything that you've done so far because now you've got the winners. Now it's time to scale. This is James Schramko. James Schramko here. Welcome back to my podcast. This is episode 951. Today, we're talking about five fast growth company case studies. I brought along Will Wang for this. Welcome, Will. Thanks, James. Great to be back on here. Thing I love about your case studies is these are actually companies you have worked with. So we're not making stuff up. We're not looking out in the market and picking examples of other companies that have gone well and trying to figure out what happened. We know what happened because you were there. <laughs> so I like that credibility. I think there's some lessons here, but I do have one question on my mind first of all. What would be a reason we want to grow fast? Yeah, that's a really good question and probably the best place to start. So for the companies that I work with and these clients of mine, the reason why they, there are several reasons, right? Sometimes it comes down to the founder or the business owner wanting to achieve more. Sometimes it came down to the fact that in this market, if they don't move fast, they'll lose first movers advantage. And sometimes it just came because, you know, this was a business where people just really wanted to push or there was a big demand for the products and the services. The market just helped really escalate what they were doing. So several reasons, but it is somewhere that you have to start before you decide, hey, I want to go and crush it and do this business. It's like, is it worth it? Am I willing to sacrifice to hit the growth? And I think between you and I, that's the thing that you're always helping me with as well, coming back to understanding, well, what is fast growth? What does that mean to you? And is it even worth doing? Yeah, well, it's, it's um, in particular with you, Will, because you're surrounded by these fast growing companies. It's so easy to just see what they're doing, to get so excited about the fast growth and then think, I want to do that too. And as visionary entrepreneurs, a lot of entrepreneurs are this high visionary, it's so easy to start playing the comparison game. (laughs) I'm all about sustainable long-term growth. I do things for a long time, long-term podcast, long-term membership, long-term team members. I have a super stable, profitable business model that won't fit the criteria for some of the things that these people are doing. But there are some similarities and crossovers, and that's what I think is really interesting. Mm. I've asked you to pick five companies you've worked with who have grown quickly and to think about those companies and what it is that you think has helped cause that growth. So let's just start with the first example. Now, I just want to clear the air here. You don't have to reveal the name of the companies because I know in your client supplier relationship, a lot of them really don't want to give away their competitive advantage, which is you, Mm. growth labs with a Z.com, right? So I understand they may want to remain private. So only talk about things that you would happy to have published, but I think would be instructive for someone listening to this episode. Yep, perfect. So I think the first client that I'm going to talk about, and this is probably the only client that I will name, it's a company called Airwallex. They're a financial technology, a fintech company, we call it. And they've just grown so quickly and so massively. I think at the moment they're doing about 100 million in revenue and they've got about 800 million in funding. So definitely a huge growth story. But what I really liked about what they did, and I think one of the key reasons why they've grown and at the rate they have is because they tackle real problems. Now, I contrast that with some of the other clients I've worked with in the past or some of the other businesses that I see in the market where they've come up and made up or made an issue a lot bigger than than it actually is, right? They're trying to create a problem that they solve rather than addressing a problem that's a reality in the market. 
So with AirWallex, for example, they do an amazing job at helping people move their money around between countries. And so it's a big problem. Companies spend millions and millions of dollars on, on foreign exchange fees. And they said, look, if we can tackle just a small part of this market, small share of the market, we can actually create a really good company. Versus on the other hand, for example, this is just off the top of my head, it might not be accurate, but a coach who says, I want to solve this weight loss problem because of you know this particular issue. And so given what I've seen in terms of you know fast growth companies, tackling a real problem that's top of mind for customers, whether it's B2B or B2C, is always a key place to start from. Perfect. So finding an actual problem, not inventing a problem or you know, blowing up a problem to be bigger than it is. Is there any examples you can think of where people are sort of over-laboring a, a pretend problem? Yeah. It doesn't have to be someone you've worked with. It could be someone you've seen in the market or you, you think about, gosh, is that even a problem? So I'll go into a very particular example here because I've actually seen this working and I've seen the pivot that's actually helped this business owner to grow and to grow faster. So the first example would be someone trying to solve a problem around overeating, right? Bad habits around overeating, you know, eating late at night and that leading to what weight gain. And so the founder had an okay business. It was kind of floating around, doing some okay numbers, but always hitting a plateau in terms of how fast or how much they were growing. And one of the key reasons is that while you know overeating can be a bit of a problem, it's not what we call a bleeding neck problem. It's not something that if you don't solve it, you're potentially going to die. I mean, in this case, it could be, but- More of a fat neck problem. <laughs> exactly. It's one of those problems that you don't feel immediately. It's yes, you notice over time, but it's not like I have to solve this today. Whereas taking the same problem and taking what you know, this family was trying to solve, once she pivoted to having the idea that if I can solve this problem, I can help people with diabetes, which is you know life or death situation, that gave her message a lot more weight, a lot more credibility, and helps it to really cut through to the right people to make this you know a much bigger value issue that she was trying to solve. So that's a that's one example where if you just tailor what you do to people who have the issue and to make it a real issue, it can actually make everything else much easier. I love it. So tackle a big problem, a real problem, and not just some made up thing. I love it. Let's talk about your next example. When you think of another client, what things have you observed they do well that has helped them to grow quickly? Hmm. So this is a client who is kind of in the coaching space, although they kind of moved out of it now, but they've grown so, so quickly uh, over the past few years. And it was a combination of several things. So they were really great at their marketing. They had you know great personality on camera. They had a good business model at the time. And they timed the business model perfectly, but also they just knew the numbers back to front. And with this client, I remember a couple of years ago now, because I've been working with them for a few years, sitting in a board meeting that, that they had. And during this board meeting, they're looking at growth and projecting the growth for the next quarter and the next year. And the founder, and you know, this is a husband and wife team, and both of them just knew the numbers back to front. And I was so impressed by that. So we were sitting there and they were saying, well, our, our cost per acquisition is this, our cost per lead is this. If we can project this out and take a 25% hit, here's what our revenue is going to look like. And here's a profit off the back of the revenue. And so they just knew the numbers back to front. And um, you know, that was very refreshing to see. And lo and behold, after a certain number of time, because they knew the numbers, because they, their entire team tracked these numbers, they pretty much hit the numbers spot on. Love it. Yeah. I mean, it's come up a lot on this podcast where I don't think a lot of the business owners are really in tune with their data. Often when I'm doing a diagnostic for someone who I want to help, 
they don't know what their effective hourly rate is. They don't know what their customer lifetime value is. They don't know what their conversion rates are. Mm. So these are really important things to know. And sometimes they have multiple products. They don't know which products actually make them a profit or a loss. And just by deleting the loss-making products, we can instantly find profit. <laughs> so what are some of the numbers that you think would be useful for someone to make sure they're tracking from now? Yeah, so there's a couple of numbers from, well, I mean, there's two sides to it. I look at it from a business perspective and a marketing perspective. Marketing perspective is probably a little bit easier to start from. And I think most entrepreneurs out there would have some kind of general sense in terms of the marketing. So, you know, we look at how much have you spent on marketing? Has it been consistent spend? And this is something I'm probably guilty of myself, or we're just not consistent in the marketing that we do, right? We get busy, we get not so busy. And when we're not so busy, it's a mad scramble to actually go and get more leads and get more customers. But consistency in marketing, how much you're spending every single month, what your key targets are, whether it's leads, whether it's people to an email list, knowing what your cost per acquisition is, you know, cost per lead, cost per acquisition, very important. And then also knowing your customer lifetime value. And on top of that, if you look at customer lifetime value from a revenue perspective, you also need to know what's your customer lifetime profit which can be a little bit different. So if you know how much you can make per customer and you know how much you're paying to acquire a customer, that gives you a really good sense of, well, here's what my numbers need to look like from a marketing and an acquisition perspective. And so if I'm underneath this number, I'm always going to be profitable. So I can go and you know, comfortably acquire at this level. Yep. So that's a marketing perspective. Business perspective, obviously you need to know what your cash flow is looking like, what your profitability is looking like, and what expenses you might have coming down, you know, down the pipeline or what big projects you might have. That's going to help you a little bit with cash flow. So that's kind of important, but obviously speak to your accountant about that side of things. I tend to focus my clients on the marketing and acquisitions and how we create offers that really adds a lot of profitability to what they're already doing. Cool. So you're talking about things like return on ad spend, customer acquisition mm. cost customer lifetime value, conversion rate for the various mediums. Another metric that might be interesting for a lot of people listening to this podcast will be the personal metric, you know, wealth creation, et cetera. Like what can you bring out of your business and create wealth from over time? Things that I talked to uh, Charlie Baylor about in other episodes. So let's talk about another case study. What's another thing that you've seen work really well for one of your clients? Yeah. So this client that I've got in mind, they're a eight-figure business, I think, and they sell really cool information products online. And uh, if I said more than that, everyone could probably guess who they are. So I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. I, I mean, I know the client, but it's yeah, that's a perfect description. So what I love here is we've covered a tech company, fintech company. We've covered a coaching business. We're now covering an information product business. So we're giving representative mm. businesses and things you can do to grow them. Yeah, exactly. So with this client that I've got in mind, what really led them to growing very, very quickly was actually their capacity, the tolerance and their ability to rapidly split test. So this kind of goes across the theme of the client that I spoke about before as well, because one of their attributes was they were also very open to testing, right? They had a comfort level of you know knowing that not every single campaign, not every single ad is going to do well, but they actually built it into the business itself. So this client of mine, when we launch campaigns for them, we launch ads for them, we launch you know, cold emails for them. They know that of every 10 campaigns that goes into the market, only two to three of the campaigns would have a really great result. And they're comfortable knowing that, well, it's okay because if we can get through the 10, we'll find the two. And the two will make us way more money than we'll ever lose on the other eight. We've got to go through the eight to find the two. And it's just that idea of being able to test their way to finding the winners and doubling, tripling down. 
Now, one big issue, one big challenge I find a lot of business owners and businesses have is that they just want to keep testing, right? They test because they think it's something they have to keep doing, and you should in a sense. But for me, the ultimate point of testing is to find the winners, to find the gold. And when you have the gold, it's okay to stop testing and just triple down on everything that you've done so far, because now you've got the winners. Now it's time to scale. And so this client of mine in particular, they've grown to eight figures, multiple eight figures very quickly over the past, you know, I think, oh, actually they've been around for a while now. So I'm going to say they've been at, um, you know, for 10 plus years, but at the very beginning to get the growth that they did, it was literally, and still to this day, a focus on being okay with not winning every single time and just focusing on scaling the winners. I mean, I've known this client for at least 13 years. They were already killing it 13 years ago. And yeah, you've got to be innovative in such a hyper-competitive market. I think the themes that come up for me are innovation, research and development, creativity, being open-minded. But I agree with you too. You've got to get down, once you know the winners, go deeper on it. It's like breeding or refining your surfboard quiver. I can really relate to this. I've been through lots and lots of surfboards to find my winner or my winners. And I've found my formula now, like just in case anyone wants to send me one. (laughs) Six foot six twin fin is my winner formula. That's the perfect size short board for me now and the type of fin configuration. So now I've got a bunch, now I'm refining down and I'm, I'm only testing six, six twin fins. So I've got a bunch of them that I'm testing against each other to find the winner, the ultimate winner. And then that allows me then to shed the bulk of the ones around it. And I've got the perfect one that I can maximize now for the next decade at least where I'm going to go deep with that and really enjoy it. It's taken me a long time to get to this point and now I'm going deeper. So test, test, test. But once Mm. you've found the winners, hold up on the spreading the resource. Now, I love your Mm. um, two from 10 thing. The first time I heard about that concept was in 2008 and I was on the aeroplane with uh, Tim Houston and he was a super affiliate. He was making $100,000 a month and he was definitely influential in helping me benchmark my way out of a job. And he said he would test 10 affiliate offers and one would be profitable. He'd ax nine and then he'd test another 10 and one would be profitable. After he did this 10 times, he can now break even on the next sample. And then after the 11th or the 12th, he's always in profit. And then he just went on to have, he had hundreds of products that he was promoting, but it was through test 10, pick one, test 10, pick one. If you've got the resources to do it, it's good to be testing. The other thing that should be mentioned when it comes to testing is a lot of companies don't have enough volume to do any meaningful data-related testing. It's still probably going to be a little bit of trying wildly different things to see what takes. I know the company we're talking about, because they're so big and because they have so much volume, they get data that is actually meaningful and Mm. means something fairly quickly. They don't have to wait forever to get a result. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that makes a big difference. So one of the things that we advocate for is speed of testing, like how quickly and how much can you test? So in the past, I've had people come through to me and, you know, I talk a lot about cold emails and people come through and say, I've sent 20 cold emails and it hasn't worked. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) sorry, you say 20 or (laughs) 20,000? Exactly. And, you know, they've done 20 over the course of three months and it's like, well, hang on, of course they're not going to. If you're going to one push up every three months, you're not going to get a six pack. Um, it's just like the whole concept of, well, you know, when we say testing, I mean, like actually go and properly test it. So whether it's ads or cold emails, they cold emails alone. We don't test for anything under a thousand cent. Like if it's less than a thousand, I just don't have enough data to know if this is going to work or not. If it's, you know, on ads, I don't test for anything less than $5,000 as a test. 
just because you don't have the volume to know, is this actually the truth or have I just hit a group of people that just for some reason aren't interested, but the next 10 people are all going to be great clients. So that's a definitely a great point that you bring up, James. Like the volume of testing matters as well. Yeah, and, and often, you know, if you make one sale or two sales, that might not be valid because you have to take out, you've got to take your mum and your <laughs> wife out of the sales and, you know, go to the real market. So you have to have a proper representation. So quick recap, we've talked about picking the right market, picking a big problem, an actual problem. That could be done with research. You know, most people don't do enough research or any research at all. Mm. So my friend Justin Brook posted about this the other day, that if you just spent two or three days doing research, it answers almost all the rest of your questions. The next thing was to really know your numbers, the really important numbers, know those numbers. And by the way, if you don't know what numbers to track, then you get in touch with Will and ask him what he would want to see as an agency to be able to help you growthlabswithaz.com. Next one is test, test, test. But when you find your winners, scale the winners. The next one, let's talk about that because I think this one is super relevant for any business. Yeah, so this is one that, you know, once you told me about the concept and this is going into our, our own coaching as well, where I want to move things really quickly. I want to do, you know, big shiny things. I want to keep numbers yesterday. And this was, once you told me, I realized that this client of mine actually epitomizes this idea of just taking your time to do the unsexy things and just to do them well. So this client of mine, they're in debt collections and you know, they've been doing the same thing over and over again for the past 20 years. They just do it really, really well. So we're in a service industry now. Exactly. Yep. Service industry. Right. Um, yeah. And they're very B2B be specific, which is why we're in there doing the cold email stuff that we do. But they've just been doing the same thing over and over again. They've built growth, you know, rather than looking at starting new businesses in an entirely different area, entirely different field. The business owner of this particular client or this business, he's actually got three or four different businesses that services the same core offer, the same core result they get for their clients, which is getting their debts collected from other companies. And so they've been doing it for 20 plus years. They're a big corporation. They've got five different companies, you know, that's held under the same group and they just do an amazing job. And being in meetings with the client, what they talk about is how can we refine and get what we've done you know, for the past 20 years and do it even better for our clients, get even better results. And they're not in a huge rush. They know they have a good product and they know they have a good service, but they're still trying to improve. But they're also just sticking to their lane. So they're not going, hey, we're in debt collections. Let's go and do finance tomorrow. They've always just stuck at the same thing and just brought on people to help them get you know, 10, 20, 30% better every year doing the same thing over and over again. But also giving it a long enough time frame where the change is really compound and the improvements really compound. I love it. I mean, this is especially relevant for service industries. Service industries, I think, are a tough industry because you've got mm-hmm. usually high stakes customers and you have to deal with the team and build a team. And there's always competitors out there because you know, everyone can sell services quite easily. Supplying services is really mastering the game. I love this sort of idea of just doing this stuff. Like at the moment, it's uh, for at nighttime, I've actually been building a little fire in our living room. And I didn't know if I'd actually even need to use a fireplace where I live because it's pretty hot during summer. And <laughs> it's just that nice little process of building the little fire, you know, when the sun goes down and then having that nice little fire, just a daily routine that creates the nice environment. I'd say my business model is pretty unsexy. It's podcast, serve members in a membership. Oh, that's pretty much it actually (laughs) for 10 years straight, right? Do a podcast, serve members in a membership. That's my business model. It's unsexy. It's a high profit, low stress, sustainable business. I've found my routine. 
And of course, I'm working on things. I want better podcast mic. I want a nice lighting. I want a bookshelf. I want to know my stuff when it comes to coaching my members. I want to be cutting edge in terms of what's working out there. And I'm able to do that because of all the people who I coach. I can cross-pollinate the best ideas. I can observe. I can think. Uh, So yeah, if you're feeling bored or your business seems mundane, just remember that copywriter's maxim that you tire of your copy long before the customer does. Maybe fall in love with just making profit rather than the thing that you do that might be not that exciting. And I used to work with lots of clients when I was at Mercedes-Benz who were in unsexy businesses like chemical business, a recycling business, a printing business, architecture firm. They were doing you know, fairly standard things, but they were just doing it at an elite level and getting all the rewards for it. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said about, you know, having a, a long-term trajectory rather than, this is something I'm very guilty of, as we both know, of having a short term, like, how do I go make a million dollars tomorrow? Whereas if you can spread it out and go, well, I don't need to make a million dollars tomorrow. Like, why? But how do I do this really well and just make sure that I build an asset that can go on for decades? That's such a different mentality. That was my problem with the often asked and posed, you know, if you lost everything and all you had was your knowledge, mm. you know, how would you make, you know, X number of dollars in 30 days or whatever? Kind of like that challenge, that the undercover millionaire, right? Mm. Or undercover billionaire, is it now these days? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not the right goal for most people. You know, if you're past survival, if you've got more than $100 and you're not living in your truck, you don't need to do a lot of the things that you needed to do. That, you know what I thought was really interesting? Grant Cardone chose the exact same business model that I used to quit my job, mm. which was just to get a handful of customers paying five grand a month for an internet marketing mm. agency service. So it was fascinating. But I did that in 2008 and I wasn't doing it for a documentary. <laughs> and they weren't talking to me just because I had a film crew and they could be famous, which I think really taints the experiment just quietly. <laughs> sure. But aside from that, it's about knowing what the goal is. I, I think we take some of these fast growth case study ideas and see if they stack up for a sustainable business, if that's your goal. I'm not here to tell you what your goal is, and I'm not going to judge you if you want to make a million dollars next month. Mm. I'm not the expert in teaching you how to do that. But I can teach you how to get to seven figures over time, and Will can take whatever you've got now and grow it quickly using what he's already learned from his fast-growing customers. There's still one left, though. So let's talk about this last mm. one, and I think this is also a really good one because I just mentioned it in my example of what I've been doing. Let's see if it stacks up. Yeah. So this last one is, you know, they're a massive company now as well. And I've thankfully got to see behind the scenes as they've grown and heard from the founder herself, who was very kind and open and sharing a lot of how he built this business. And so the last one was really about picking one channel and just maximizing it until you've actually saturated the channel, right? And just picking a channel that most people don't even think about, or most people aren't even across, or it's not something that's talked about a lot, but can really drive a business. And so this is another software company that services, let's just say the retail space, you know, mid-tier retail. That's good. We've got software now. So we've done software services, information products, Mm. fintech. So I, I love that we're covering a different range of businesses here. Mm. Yeah, so this software company in particular, you know, you wouldn't think that software with all the flashiness around it and all the newness around it would use a lot of cold emails or direct mail. But this software company in particular, the founder said, look, I think all of our competitors are smashing ads, not done a great job of it, but there's a lot of noise on, on the advertising space at the moment. Let's just pick a medium for us that can get straight through to our ideal end user. And they were going after mid-tier companies. So not like, you know, people starting up an e-commerce business, which is what Shopify is great at. 
And he just said, look, let's just maximize this. Use cold emails as a channel because there's less noise on it and just really go hard at the market and use this as a way to win. And so they grew very quickly as well. I think at the moment they must be doing about $100 million a year or something like that. They're growing off the back of you know this idea of guerrilla marketing, right? Of going to events, using cold emails to get people to events, cold emailing after events, using emails well, you know, setting up exciting things around the events itself and just getting in front of the clients in the way that their competitors weren't and just making sure that they just saturated their channel and didn't deviate from a channel that they knew was working. So rather than testing, you know, Facebook ads, LinkedIn ads, all this kind of stuff, they just said, we'll do cold emails, we'll send people stuff in the mail, and then let's just maximize that before we even think about paid advertising. Love it. Picking a channel, maximizing it. I mean, for me, podcasts. Mm. Podcasts have delivered for me on the long term, and it's something I can do forever. Uh, as long as people will listen mm. to me, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's a sustainable, I can do two a week, no trouble. I could easily do one a week. You know, this is the crazy thing. If you did one a week, you can do a month's worth of content in just one day, one day a month for that whole channel to record the content if you're doing it right. And then you can have people distribute and disseminate the information. So what channels are you specialized in, Will, with Growth Labs with a Z.com? We do a lot of cold emailing. So as ads get more difficult, you know, as Facebook ads, especially the tracking is gone, a lot of the audiences are gone. A lot of my clients are thinking, well, where else do we go? And organic's kind of tough at the moment as well in terms of LinkedIn. But what we've seen over and over again is it's our most sustainable channel by far. It's just you know, email outreach, having a good message, knowing who you're sending emails to, really personalizing the email as well, and just having a process and a campaign that consistently gets your message in front of the right people. And that is, I think, you know, 80% of the results come uh, that we get for our clients comes from that channel. We also do things like direct mail, where we send things in the post, that works well. And then on top of that, we do a little bit of LinkedIn advertising here and there, but we've really gone deep into this idea of a good message sent to the right people at the right time can get amazing results. So let's just um, run the little filter across your own business here. Um, but before that, I just want one final tip. And this is an important one. You wrote this down and I think it's important. Get out of your own way when the time comes. Mm. And this is something I experience. I've helped a lot of my clients as they've grown. I've had a few clients go from $1 million to $10 million a year, right? Mm. And they need to get people to come in and help them. The sorts of roles that we're talking about then is general manager, chief of staff, chief financial officer, integrator, chief operations person. These sort of things need to come in to the business so they can get out of the way because often the founder is going to hold it back. And we see an endless number of documentaries about this, you know, whether it's WeWork or the jobs one or whatever, like we do see where people get ousted from their own company. Mm. It can happen. So talk to that point. Yeah, that's, that's such a good point. And, and I'm really glad you brought it up, James. I, mean, oh, I almost missed it. Um, I brought it up because you wrote it down. <laughs> yeah, I almost missed it. Completely forgot about it. But it is a really good point because in that last example, especially of the software company, the founder of the company itself, uh, so you know, the person who was sharing this information with me, he actually hired a full-time CEO of his business when they were doing about 15 or $20 million a year. And he extracted himself completely from the business. 
And one of the things he said to me was, I know where my limitations are. I know where my passions are. I don't want to grow this business from 20 to $100 million a year because it's more about systems and processes and people at that stage. Whereas he really liked starting a business and, and going fast in terms of growth. So he actually got out of his own way and hired someone to do the job of a CEO. And that's how they've grown you know, to $100 million, $150 million a year, whatever it is, the number that they're doing. Just a few weeks ago, I was actually listening to two other entrepreneurs who had sold their companies for $100 million plus, and the same kind of theme came through. You know, There's a certain point where if you're going to bring in an agency or other staff members, you just bring the right people in, let them do what they're going to do, and just trust them to actually do you know, what you brought them in to do. So that was one side of it as well that I, that I heard from these amazing entrepreneurs who had sold some big, big money. And the other side was just knowing, I think this is my exit point. And these other entrepreneurs, and these aren't clients of mine, but you know, we, I organized an event where we had them along as speakers. One of the things that they both said was they just felt like the time was right, where they had to get out of their own way. And we've seen stories where founders have hung on for a little bit too long, and they could have jumped ship and had this big exit or done something really cool and had a success story, but they just kept trying to hold on past the due date, and it kind of ruined the company. So you know, both sides, even if you're growing, what is it that you shouldn't be doing that you're still doing and that you have to let go of? Or is it the time that you need to start thinking about selling the company because you're just not in it anymore? Um, it's the important point. It's the same thing I heard Alex Hormosi talking about in one of his videos from when he was interviewing a billionaire that to go from $100 million to a billion, they basically just checked out <laughs> and uh, they, <laughs> they gave people equity and just let them grow it. So it's, it's almost ideal in a way to not have to be so responsible and not have to um, do all the work and to still get that kind of growth, it is possible. Mm. I know in my case, the key to my business being very sustainable is that my team are really good at doing the stuff that I shouldn't be doing or don't want to do. I, mm. I don't want to edit my podcast anymore, for example. I don't want to log into my email system and send emails. I don't want to build my websites. I don't want to transcribe my show notes. I don't want to post the monthly training to my membership after I finished recording it, right? So getting that right support team is a key to having a growth, but still enjoying what you do and not getting burnt out from it. So let's just do a little recap here of the of the case studies. We've talked about making sure this is the path you want to go down. Are you choosing fast growth for the right reasons? Pick the right market and tackle a real problem. Okay. So in your case, Will, who do you pick as your market and what problem do you solve? Yep. So in my case, I work with B2B business owners who are looking to bring on high value clients, i.e. clients that are worth, you know, if they've got a product or service that's worth more than $10,000, we specialize in helping them get a whole bunch more clients for their products or services. Love it. Uh, we talked about knowing your numbers front and back. Clearly as an advertising agency, Will, I'm, I'm pretty sure you would know your cost of acquisition, your lifetime customer value and your conversion metrics. I mean, that's, you, you would live and breathe that, correct? It's uh, it's funny. I live and break my clients' numbers <laughs> with my own numbers. Sometimes it's the case of, you know, um, what's the saying? The cobbler's son wears no shoes. We're a little bit like that for ourselves sometimes, but thankfully we do such good work that we get a lot of referrals. So, um, but I do know my clients' numbers back to front. Absolutely. I know you do because I, I ask you, <laughs> you're like, when we're looking to, to grow your business, it's like, who are your good clients and what is the good ratio of expectation to profitability to you being able to deliver a great result, et cetera. Test, test, test again. I imagine as a cold email specialist, you would be doing plenty of testing of, of both the messaging and the frequency and the technology to deliver, et cetera. Mm. 
Yeah, we religiously test everything, everything from audience to offer to headline subject lines to if we include gifts and in emails, pictures, messaging, everything. It's just just part of our, our routine now. We're, we test so much that if we're not testing, it actually feels strange. In terms of doing the unsexy work and then building everything around that, what are some of the unsexy things that you have to do for the cold emailing for B2B that you're taking off the hands of clients? Yeah, so probably the most unsexy part of it is building the list itself. So we don't buy lists. You know, the lists that you buy are really pretty low quality. The data's old. They've been hammered a thousand times. We actually build every single list from scratch for our clients with personalization for every single contact. So if they were to do it themselves, it would take them hours and hours of work every single day. We just kind of take it off their hands. That's the, the unsexy stuff that we become really good at doing. So it's like research, database compiling, yeah. the copywriting, finding the messaging and all that stuff, responding. Mm-hmm. Okay, next one, picking a channel and maximizing it. I mean, clearly, you know your channels that work well for you. And I actually can't think of many people who do what you do at a high level. There's a couple, but not many. And I've had a couple of people approach me where they've actually cracked through. One, I think I went on his podcast, but it's really rare. You know, 99% of them just get deleted. It's funny. I think that one that cracked through, I'm actually great friends with as well. So when you showed me his email, I knew exactly what it was. Yeah, I mentioned it too. I think they mentioned you. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not surprised here. There's, they're drinking from the same water cooler. <laughs> I said, this is actually good. I said, a friend of mine does this too. Will Wang. He said, I know Will. He's a friend of mine. And so, like, hey, this all makes sense. Uh, and the, the final tip we had is get out of your own way when the time comes. So, Will, this has been a lot of fun. Episode 951. I also know we're going to do a Grill Will soon. So if you're not familiar with Grill Will, Will is often in the top 10 podcasts. On a yearly basis, we look at all the top 10 podcasts. He's managed that twice now. One of our popular episodes got a lot of downloads. By the way, I think you've had over 10,000 downloads of your podcasts on our show. Is Grill Will, and it's where I ask Will questions that you ask me to ask him. So if you've got a question for Will and you listen to this podcast, please send me an email, james at jamesshramco.com and let me know what question you've got for the Grill Will episode. Just put subject line Grill Will, put your question for Will. You've got a good sense for what he's capable of now. Put the question there. I'll ask Will as many questions as I can in an episode coming up soon. Thanks so much, Will, from Growth Labs with a Z.com. I appreciate you coming along and sharing these uh, fast growth company case studies. Thanks, James. This is James Schramko. 